2: I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit
1: heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with the second half of Headley and Bennett, Ellen Bennett. And, you know, people know you for your ampersand more so than anything else. I see that little red and black logo on the, you know, breast of so many chefs around the country, world even, um, and I know it's you. I mean, that must be great to walk into a place and see the presence that you've made in the industry.
1: It's pretty fucking exciting. Yeah, yeah, Not gonna yeah. lie. It's exciting. I'm like, oh my God, Apron Squad member. Yeah. I see you. I, I'll hug people that don't even know who I am. And I'm yeah. like, Apron Squad. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, it's the apron lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I, I don't think there are many people that don't know you by now because you're, you're this kind of omnipresent personality within social media um, in relation to your business. But, you know, it's such a funny thing to think of someone who used to cook the line, used to be in the back of the house gets to be this overt personality
1: yeah it, you know it was really funny because when I was a line cook I mean I was still the maniac that I am today <laughs> so they would actually call me Tonky, short for Tonka truck because yeah. I would come bulldozing through the (laughs) kitchen and if i ever got in trouble for anything i was always like yes chef absolutely i cannot believe i let that happen i refuse to ever let that happen again i am so sorry i will take care of that and everyone else would just be like grunting like (laughs) oh sorry chef and i'd be like no he's like all right relax go back to your station so i've always been sort of like outspoken you could say i mean
2: this energy book this discipline, where did it, where did it come from? Was your household, you know, very straight and narrow? Everything was done in a specific way?
1: Um, no, it's funny. Like, I grew up ha- being half Mexican, half English.
2: So You still are half I, Mexican, I, half I, English. You know,
1: back in the day when I was, <laughs> <laughs> I've converted now to full Mexican. Um, yeah, so my mom, super crazy hardworking lady. Like, blue collar nurse, worked 12-hour shifts. Talk about, like fucking love for the craft like she got up at 6 a.m came home at 8 p.m so I sort of like grew up seeing that and then my parents got divorced and then she worked even more and then my dad is English and so I'd go over to my grandparents house and they would you know serve me tea and crumpets in the (laughs) middle of the day so it was this very like I don't know dignified lifestyle As compared to my Mexican lifestyle, which was like run around the streets of Mexico, play soccer, be a little kid, be happy and crazy. And so both worlds sort of merged for me when I grew up. I was like really hardworking, but also sort of had this like dignified side to life and also saw the bigger picture of things. And how can I do big for the whole world? And how can I make my impact in the world? Not just like my little life, but the whole world.
2: Yeah, I mean... You went through school. You you went to Mexico City to study uh, the culinary arts and restaurant management. But even before that, when you were a kid at school, um, what what was your personality like? Uh, you know, did you have a ton of friends? Were you always the loudest one?
1: Oh my gosh, I was a, I was and am and forever will be a goofball. Yeah, yeah. I always am like. 28 going on 12 yeah and I actually have a lot of friends that are little kids and I'll come over to their house and cook with them yeah like I very much love the way children look at life because they don't see the walls so they walk right through them and I try and live my life that way where I'm like anything is possible if you can dream it you can do it we actually had that um, painted on the side of my factory and it says Walt Disney under it and so I think I've always been very much like that like I had an idea in my head and then I I would like to see it in real life, and then I would do it in real life, and then it was, like, one notch on my belt of life of, like, oh, wow, look, you can do what you want. And then I just kept tacking those on all through my youth, and then when I was, like, 18 and actually had, like, life in in my hands, I was like, oh, my God, I could do so much. So I, like, went on a trip around the world because my dad is a pilot, but it wasn't, like, a glamorous trip. Basically, all I had was, like, airplane tickets. So I had to hustle where to stay, where to live, how to make enough, like $6,000 last me like a month and a half. And so I like went to Argentina. I went to Tokyo. I climbed Mount Fuji. I did all these things that exposed the whole fucking world to me and made me go like, holy shit, the world is tangible. Like you can actually touch it and you can go there and you can climb that mountain and then you get off that mountain and then you can go somewhere else and do something else. And so it like really made me think like you can literally do what. Ever you want, yeah. and the only person that's going to stop you is you and the things that you think you can't do.
2: Yeah, I mean there are truths in that. I mean you've been a lottery announcer,
1: yes, <laughs>
2: <laughs> which is in, in Mexico, which I'm going to yes? bust out at yeah. some point yeah, in the yeah, middle please of this. <laughs> do. Yeah, call those balls. Um, American football host in Mexico as well. So you were doing bilingual
3: play
2: yes. by play. Yep, exactly. Can you give us a little sampling? I mean, the Super Bowl is coming up. <laughs> Who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? And tell that to me in Spanish.
1: No, so they they would be like um, they they hired me because of my English accent, right? And so I'd, I'd be like, "Aquí estamos hoy con Tony Romo. Qué bonito está. Ay, me encanta él. Es el mejor. Y está guapísimo." Okay, Tony, we're coming back to you. <laughs>
2: I, I it was funny, I was in Austria watching American football on TV and they didn't have a literal translation for two minute warning. So it would be in German, then it'd go two minute warning and then go back into oh, that's German so funny. still. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing. So I mean, after these other lives, you, yeah. you came back to the States and you were cooking the line.
1: Yes. And yes.
2: You found yourself in some really excellent restaurants in LA. What what were they and why did you want to work in those types of kitchens?
1: So having been in Mexico, I was there for four years. um, And those were two of the like seven jobs that I had. (laughs) Um, And after doing all that, which was, you could say fairly glamorous, but I also worked jobs like being a booth babe. You know, like those are the girls that stand and like give you pamphlets about information about canola oil to bulletproof vehicles. So I also did that. And so I came back to the U.S. and was like, okay, well, now I have my little measly certificate that I did restaurant management I need to go do something with myself. I want to have a taco empire. And so my whole plan was I wanted to be like a taco empress and I and I knew I could do it and it was going to be called La Gringa Tacos. And I even got a DBA like doing business as it expired like three years ago. Um, And so I was like, well, I better get a job at a restaurant. That seems like the appropriate thing to do so I can figure out how to run my own taco empire. And so a friend of mine gave me a list of 10 restaurants in L.A., did not say who was better or who was worse. And Providence um, and Lazy Ox were on there. And so, you know, I walked into Mozza. I walked into Susan Finnegar's restaurant. And I, like, charged up to the chef, handed them my resume, was like, you know, went at the appropriate time from two to four in the middle of the week and two places basically gave me a sort of crack in the door opening. Uh, Bako Mercat, well, really Joseph Centeno, the chef at the time at Lazy Ox, uh, who later became my first client ever, which was kind of amazing. And then Chef Michael Simarusti from Providence. Now, when I got my job at Providence, I had no fucking idea that this place was a two-Michelin star restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> I like bamboozled one of the waiters outside, like one of the busboys actually, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, ¿dónde está la entrada del edificio?" <laughs> and I like got him to take me in through the back door. He walked me in the kitchen, literally like dumped me in there, and he was like, "All right, there's a chef. Good luck. Bye." Yeah. Like he was like, "You're cute. I'm gonna help you, but only a little." And and so I like stormed up to Simarusi, who really I look back and it was kind of like walking up to like a grizzly bear, and I was like, "Hi, chef. My name's Alan. I'm from Mexico. I have so much work hustle. I can't even tell you. You got to show me. I gotta. I gotta like. J- I gotta get in here, and I want to run around and show you how great I work." And I was just like walking and running a mile a minute while I talked to him. And I was really nervous, but I didn't know why, because I'm not normally nervous, but the entire kitchen had stopped and was looking at me. And I, at the time, had like, a, was wearing like a blue dress and part of my hair was shaved off. And, you know, he's just staring at me like, who the fuck are <laughs> you? And how did you get in this kitchen? And, and then he was like, okay, yeah, I guess you can come in this weekend. And then that was it. Yeah. That's how I got yeah. into Providence.
2: Yeah, but did you know how to cook? I mean, did you know how to cook at that level?
1: No. Fuck no. Yeah. No, not even close. I didn't even know what a brunoise was. I mean, I had a hell of a lot of chutzpah and hustle and great work ethic. Um, and I cleaned like a boss. So... Uh, Basically, I just observed the shit out of everything everybody did and became a sponge. And when I didn't know what to do, I would clean. And I would clean so fast that everyone was kind of like, oh, well, at least she cleans quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least she can like clean half the kitchen while we're only breaking down our low boy. And I feel like that's what kind of got me through the first couple weeks. And then they actually hired me two weeks later. They're whereas that night they're like no we don't have a job opening for you but I was like there's no fucking way I'm leaving this mm-hmm. place let me come back and work for free and so two weeks later they're like we want to hire you yeah so then I was and then I was in and then I mean it wasn't easy but I definitely like picked up so much of everything at that place I owe them my whole entire mental capacity in the realm of cooking along with you know Joseph
2: yeah I mean you you mentioned observations yeah uh, uh, watching and kind of absorbing that and I feel like there must have been a point where you realized something was ahead for Headley and Bennett. You know, what, what was that turning point where you were in the kitchen wearing aprons, wearing terrible, you know, one-size-fits-all whites that, you know, get dry-cleaned and sent back and never really clean or yeah. never really yours. Grind, they, they don't yeah. feel personal. Yeah. Um, when did you notice that that could be a possible outlet for you?
1: Well, when I was going to restaurant management school in mexico um which is aka a cheaper version of saying culinary school because my dad was like i'm not gonna pay 60 grand for you to go learn how to cut carrots like you can do the little class that's less money and i was like okay fine um but i i realized that the uniform sucked and coming from the lottery announcer the talk show host all these like very glamorous roles where i would have two hours of prep and makeup and hair and everything to then go and be pretty on TV, you know, and then you now have the flip side of getting your ass handed to you in a kitchen and you're wearing shit uniforms and you feel like shit and you look like shit and you're working like 12 hour days and you're like, oh, my God, this is hell on earth sort of a thing. But you also love it. And I sort of felt like it was a similarity to when you run a marathon and when you run a marathon, you're like, this is hell on earth, but I love it. And I feel like I'm doing well above and beyond what I think I can do. And that's that adrenaline that comes from the kitchen. And so I started thinking about how do you make a uniform that makes you feel good, but in the kitchen in the same way that you have a great outfit for running and you feel like a boss in your mm-hmm. sexy little Nike shorts. Um, I was like, if only I could do that for the kitchen and make people have dignity. And that's where it all began. It really began with a sense of dignity for oneself to feel like you were someone, even if you were no one. And that that in itself, you were being your own cheerleader. Yeah. So, I
2: mean, what could be construed as glamour was really about confidence.
1: Totally. Totally. And just like, not even holding your head up high in a cocky way, but more just like, I can do this. And whatever goes down in this war of a kitchen tonight, (laughs) I will fucking walk away in one piece and I will make it. And I think that when you have that mentality in a kitchen... You can pretty much do anything because all the people that would come into Providence and be nervous and scared were the ones that had the hardest time. But the ones that were willing and open to learn were the ones that excelled and and moved up the ranks the quickest.
2: So at the ripe old age of 24, you decided... My, my, you know all about me. (laughs) You decided... To step out of the kitchen
1: yes or well, maybe
2: maybe to say straddle that line yeah you, yeah
1: it wasn't much of a decision yeah. i wasn't like oh my god i'm leaving providence i was like no i'm not leaving providence yeah i did not leave providence up until a year and a half after Headley and bennett had begun i had a kit i had my own office already and i had staff and i still refused to leave providence
2: for what reason
1: i think i was scared For one, I was like, "People aren't going to trust me if I don't work at Providence anymore. What if I'm not real anymore?"
2: She just wore one of your aprons. (laughs) I mean, that's where the confidence comes from, right? Get
1: your fucking apron on, lady. Apron lady. That I think that was a big fear of mine, and it was my own safety net. I felt in a weird way, even though the kitchen environment is so intense and crazy. It was totally my home in a place that I felt like I could be the crazy maniac that I am and move as fast as I wanted to and not be called out for it. Like, you you know, every kitchen, every famous kitchen says, have a sense of urgency. And that's like so ingrained in my blood that it was like my perfect environment. So I didn't want to leave it. It was hard for me to go to the quote unquote real world.
2: Yeah, because all real world. Offices have zip lines, yellow (laughs) swirly slides. I mean, you, you created you created your ideal fantasy workplace, and you made that a reality.
1: The word, yes, we're trying. Yeah, <laughs> it's still We still have renovations in the works. But yeah, a chef came the other day, wonderful, um, Marco Nicoli, who's the culinary director for Traeger Grills. And he said, he walked in and screamed, oh, my God, this is the Disneyland for chefs. <laughs> and I think that's really what I was going for. A happy fucking place on earth for chefs.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
3: Hello out there, it's Steve Jenkins. I'm with Fairway Markets. White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway Butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's heritage turkey, Japanese steaks, Berkshire pork, or Navajo churro lamb chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at heritagefoodsusa.com for more information.
2: And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Here again with Ellen Bennett of Headley & Bennett.
1: hello, The
2: apron squad.
1: That's right. The fucking apron squad. So
2: these custom-made aprons, chef coats, chef hats, potholders, napkins, more. What was the first one you made, and how did you make that? Because you didn't have that office. You didn't have your L.A. You know, facilities. uh, No,
1: I fucking didn't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Basically, this is how it went down. I was standing in Baco Mercat, and my chef was like, I'm going to have some chick make me aprons. And it was like holy shit, the light has shined on my life. Yeah, And I was like, chef, I'm gonna make you those aprons and basically in like a 30 second pitch I convinced him to drop this chick that was gonna make him aprons and give me the order. So out of fucking nowhere I had an order for 40 aprons and I didn't even have a pattern. I didn't even have I had an idea and I had a lot of like guts to tell my chef that I could do this. And so over the cash register we just made the deal in his kitchen.
2: Um, (laughs) I mean in Mexico were you ever a seamstress? I mean one of your many jobs.
1: I don't even know (laughs) how to sew but i really love design like i i true i'm the like person that drives by a house that's shitty looking and i'm like if that was my house i would paint the shutters i would change it like i'm always imagining how to make things better um just that's in my mind all the time and so i literally left the restaurant and ran around downtown like trying to find stores trying to find like imagining all the things that i hated about my aprons and what i could make better about them And I called a friend and I was like, I will come and make you dinner right now if you can help me make a pattern. Cool? We'll be there in an hour. And that was literally, like, that's how I got my first pattern. I had another friend who I made breakfast for so that he could teach me about fabrics. Um, And then the rest was very instinctive, like, feeling them and touching them and seeing what felt right in the kitchen. And I knew because my aprons were such shit I knew what I wanted very clearly.
2: Yeah, you know, I I kind of like what you just said about using food almost as this bartering system. Um, (laughs) Because when I started the show, it was completely unintentional. I didn't, I didn't mean for it to be uh, what has turned into one of the best networking things I could have done for myself. Yeah, Um, where I get to ask really intelligent people smart questions, or at least I try to do that. Yeah, (laughs) at least I try to do that, Um, and. That just never felt like the mentality in a kitchen. You know, it's changed and I'm so glad it has, but it used to be so kind of regimented and there used to be this hierarchy in this way that, you know, you kept everything to yourself. So it must be really cool to be in a time and place where you can collaborate with, you know, someone who knows how to make patterns, aprons, chefs that have ideas too, and, you know, make this singular product that represents everybody.
1: Oh, totally. It's kind of insane. Like, at the time when I started this, you know, there really weren't that many companies out there except for, like, the basic ones that had been around forever and sort of had a monopoly on the world. And, <clears throat> you know, when you only have, like, say, Bank of America to go to as a bank, that's all you go to. But then what if, like, a new place pops up and they have better ideas or they have a different idea? It might not even be better. It's just different. It's changed, etc. And I sort of felt like... It was right around the time when chefs were starting to get quite, quite a lot of spotlight. And they were actually started to... They were kind of like coming out of their own shell. And I was coming out of my own shell. And together we sort of came out of our own shells. And, um, and now the fucking culinary world is like the hottest shit around. Yeah. It's so <laughs> awesome because all these amazing people that maybe are like a little bit of a hermit have to break out of their shells and talk to the world and show the world what they're doing. And it's kind of awesome because I think the culinary world is fucking fascinating and the people in it are so goddamn awesome and amazing and intelligent and crazy. I mean, we're crazy, crazy to live this life, but I I love it.
2: Yeah, but creative.
1: Yeah, but like when I say crazy, I mean crazy in a good way. I mean crazy because they see an asparagus and they turn it into something phenomenal and that sort of... A beautiful thing. They're geniuses. Yeah. Like, people in the kitchen are fucking geniuses. And
2: you see an apron, and you say, that needs adjustable straps.
1: Yeah. I <laughs> want to turn it into a into a magical <laughs> asparagus. Yeah.
2: It needs one-inch thick webbing <laughs> to prevent cutting in, into the wearer's neck. Uh, beautifully constructed brass hardware. <gasps> uh, well-placed pockets reinforced with bar tacks to avoid ripping. I mean...
1: Yes. Yes. Did you leather s- straps that are made out of butter that took us forever to source <laughs> so they wouldn't cut or stretch yeah. like yeah
2: But you you saw this. You saw this initially when you made that deal with uh, Chef Joseph.
1: Yes. Yes, I totally did. Yeah. I had it just in the same way I said I liked when I was little I liked to see things in my head and then make them real. I I had this like mental confidence that no matter what I was going to make him aprons that he loved um and it was not all like sunshine and butterflies like when i gave him the order he called me a week later into the kitchen right because i still technically worked for him um and he was like the fucking straps are not working and you know i could have been like a little dick about it yeah like sorry chef well good luck and I didn't. I was like, this guy's my customer and I got to take care of him. And so I said, not to worry, chef. I'm going to take those aprons back and we're going to get those repaired for you right away. We'll make it happen. And then like, boom, it's suddenly my mentality of being a business started. And I was like, no matter who you are, or where you're from, I will take care of you. Whether you buy one apron for me or a million, I will always take care of my squad, my apron yeah. squad, which is now what the apron squad is.
2: Yeah, I mean, th- that... That mantra, that mentality you have in the office is, is like what a kitchen is going towards. Yeah. Um, or, or should be. I mean, you all... How many people do you have working for you now? A buttload. Yeah, a buttload. <laughs> I mean, it's all LA-made. <laughs> LA yes. Um, yes. Though you source, you know, canvas from the US, American-made yeah, canvas. Yeah. You do denim from Japan. I mean, yep. you source... Wor-
1: from Spain. Yeah, all over the world.
2: But, I mean, at its core... It's an L.A.-based business. Totally. And yeah. it's L.A.-based people. And it's it, it's a family that, that you've grown. Yeah. Um, how important is it to have that sense of family within your business?
1: Oh, my God. It's so freaking important. I feel like I've aged like 50 years in my head uh, just in the last three years because being a business owner, you literally have to assume full responsibility for anything and everything that happens because at the end of the day you are the owner you are the sole creator of this thing and everyone else is there to to be a part of it and help with it but you're definitely like your ass is on the line when something really goes bad and you're the one that is going to have to deal with it for real and I think that uh, it's a crazy thing to to take that on especially when I was 24 and now I'm 28. But but I grew into it. It was like every time I hired someone or fired someone, I got another little notch in my belt of life and I just felt like I could handle a little bit more and a little bit more. And and I love it. I mean, the fact that I get to like cultivate people in my space and that I get to offer them the type of environment that I always wanted – I, I wanna I wanna give people a business that they want to support. So if you buy an apron from me, I want you to be so fucking happy to pay for that apron because you know that you're helping all these amazing people in LA have jobs, that you're supporting the American economy, that you are have a sense of pride, like it's so much more than just an apron or just a business. It's like it's literally like it's a fucking way of life. It's kind of it sounds so cheesy, but I literally mean it wholeheartedly.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, these amazing people that you work with um, and these amazing customers you have, I mean, what have you learned from them? Because you, you go to L.A. and you, you walk into John and Vinny's and I see your aprons. And it's, it's part of their ambiance now. Same with, uh, you know, Chef Ludo, yeah. Michael Otaggio, um I mean, Grant Ackett Mary Batali, Thomas Keller, the list goes on. Um, what have you gained experience-wise from working with these people who are already established figures in those communities?
1: I mean, humility is absolutely key. I think that no matter who I am or where I get to in life, like I'm always going to be grateful for every single customer and for every single person that supports our company and being very, very willing to change and willing to accept responsibility when things go wrong. I think that we've had a lot of success because every time we failed, we got up fucking fast and we fix the shit immediately and we're very proactive like if we have you know recently we had something with a snap we contacted every single customer that had ever gotten that thing with the snap that wasn't working to check in to see if they had had a problem and if they had we were gonna like ship it a new one refund the whole nine yards but like going above and beyond because that's the service i would expect you know from another Place that I would want to buy stuff from. So, yeah, yeah, that's kind of how we how we roll.
2: <laughs> it's it's an amazing thing again to to see that ampersand, you know, in, in so many restaurants around the world. I mean, who in New York has that that logo? Uh,
1: um, on their uniforms, like Momofuku. All, yeah, pretty much all the Momofukus have it. Um, like the guys at Gramercy Tavern, Untitled at the Whitney, the whole restaurant wears it, which is really something. You know, Danny Myers one of my total heroes and uh, I met him last year at Aspen Food and Wine and he was like your aprons completed the look that we needed at Untitled and to get you know Danny who's literally my hero um, to say that to me was really special like we're getting to outfit people when they spend millions of dollars in the restaurant and then they use our aprons like it's an honor every fucking time
2: well that's what's so amazing is the breadth of people that you work with there's such diversity in in their you know interiors in their cuisine in their personalities and the way you customize aprons you're able to fit in all those
1: yeah and and well I always tell people, I'm like, we're we're not going to sell you an apron. We're going to design an apron for you. Like we're apron designers, and we want it to fit your look and your brand and your style, so that it's really yours and it's not just a Headley and Bennett apron. It's an apron that you created and we made it for you.
2: Yeah, you know, again with that ampersand, that little and sign. I, I feel like yes, Headley is your grandfather. Yes. you are Bennett, but the and is whoever. Purchases or
1: where's oh that apron, great, yeah. So and right. then
2: you get to wear that almost as a symbol of this is mine. Yep. You know, totally. it, and means all the people that you work with, and you know, obviously collaborating with you. But yep. you know, it, it feels like I've accomplished something by being able to have that and on your chest.
1: And, and when we opened this factory, speaking of and, um we we wanted it to be a place where all the ands, as you could call them, <laughs> yeah, could come and they could be a part of the factory and it's. 14,000 square foot space so you can literally like we threw a party for Shake Shack last weekend and had hosted a thousand people like we had a thousand people check in and we made 1500 burgers and just to think that we created a space where people could come and we could throw events if we wanted to for them and with them for the chef world is so fucking special
2: well uh, Jack I think the next uh, HRN happy hour should be at Headley and Bennett in LA <laughs> so uh, yeah. you're, g- you're gonna see all of Heritage Radio Network, flood your <laughs> offices soon. <laughs> Ellen, thank you so much for being on. And if you want to become part of that apron squad, go to headleanbennett.com.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. The big thanks to Calgary Creamery, Heritage Foods USA, Music by Cookies, and the Omnipresent Jack. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.